0: We will vote to confirm Justice Kennedy's successor this fall. Our Republican colleagues in the Senate should follow the rule they set in 2016, not to consider a Supreme Court justice in an election year.
1: Well, this should be fun. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Uh-oh. I got the feeling something right. No, it ain't. I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how i get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me Jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK it's 90.7 it's FM it's in LA Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ And in Cottage Grove on KSO in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on some fine Internet affiliates, including the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. White-knuckling it today, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse... Uh, does you get he words. do? You yeah, <laughs> it has. Uh, we we've had a lot of grim news. We had a lot of grim news on yesterday's program and and frankly, all of this week, out of the stolen u s. Supreme Court with a uh, with five to four rulings this week in favor of voter suppression, in favor of Donald Trump's shameful Muslim ban against the right of states to restrict the activities of anti-abortion scam artists, all decisions that would have gone the other direction almost certainly had it not been for um, the stolen U.S. Supreme Court. And we had another troubling 5-4 ruling on Wednesday as the illegitimate court released the last of its decisions before leaving for its three-month summer recess. But we also have some much sunnier, more progressive, good progressive news from Tuesday's primary election in seven states. We will still try to cover as much of that as we can today. John Nichols of The Nation will be joining us shortly. But much of which I had hoped to discuss today was sort of just blown away just now before airtime today. Uh, With the news that uh, one Washington Post wag describes as uh, having, quote, the effect on the American political conversation of hitting a hornet's nest with another hornet's nest. That sounds about right. And of course, it's just what we needed today. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement on Wednesday, giving President Donald Trump the chance to cement his control Of the high court potentially for decades. The 81 year old Kennedy said in a statement he is stepping down after more than 30 years on the court. A Republican appointee uh, by Ronald Reagan, he has uh, held the key vote on such high profile issues as abortion, affirmative action, gay rights, guns, campaign finance, and voting rights. Kennedy said he has informed his colleagues and uh, Donald Trump of his plans and that his retirement will take effect at the end of July. Trump, for his part, said that the search for a new justice would begin, quote, immediately. Kennedy has sided with liberal justices on gay rights and abortion rights over the years, as well as some cases involving race, the death penalty, the rights of people detained without charges at Guantanamo Bay, He has written all the court's major gay rights decisions, including the 2015 ruling that declared same sex marriage is a uh, constitutional right nationwide. That right may now be endangered with uh, an even farther to the right justice on the court if that is allowed to happen. Kennedy has also been a key vote for conservatives when they have won major rulings, for example, on the outcome of the 2000 presidential election in favor of George W. Bush, uh, in favor of gun rights, limiting regulation of campaign money and gutting a key provision of the landmark Federal Voting Rights Act. Several uh, former law clerks said that Kennedy prefers to be replaced by a Republican. It looks like he will get his wish Control of the Senate is now at stake in the November elections and if Democrats capture the majority, Trump could find it difficult to get his choice confirmed, which is just one of the reasons why Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced today very quickly that he would swiftly call for a vote on whoever Trump nominates. In contrast with having held up a vote on Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, to fill the seat left vacant by Antonin Scalia for nearly a year, you'll recall at that time, McConnell said since primary elections had already begun back in 2016 in uh, February of that year, that the American people deserve to have a voice in the next Supreme Court justice selection. So he refused to hold a vote at all for a year. That should be equally as true now. We are even closer to the November elections this year. But of course, Republicans have uh, very short memories and far shorter ethics or morals when it comes to these things. Minority Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat, uh, said that they should follow the McConnell rule and not hold a vote until after the American public has voted this fall. Frankly, if you ask me, Democrats should put it all on the line at this point and simply refuse to vote on any nominee before January, before the new Senate uh, comes into uh, session next January. They should simply walk out, shut the Senate down if necessary. I don't know what the quorum rules are and if they could shut it down by walking out. But if that's what it takes, if they should need to shut down the entire Senate for months at this point, they should do it. Anyway, we'll see what John Nichols has to say about all of that and much more shortly. In the meantime, before we uh, get to whatever we now have time for from uh, this, uh, the sunnier news I mentioned from Tuesday's primary elections, uh, very quickly on the Supreme Court's last turd dropped into the American punch bowl. Uh, <laughs> well, this, you know, that's that's kind of what it is. So. That is. And this was before the decision. I'm talking about the court, their decision that they dropped before leaving for the, uh, for the summer and before Kennedy's announced uh, retirement. Before all of that, uh, the court dealt a very serious financial blow to organized labor, The stolen illegitimate Supreme Court on Wednesday ruled that the uh, that public government workers cannot be forced to contribute to labor unions, even though those same unions are required to represent them in collective bargaining. The justices in, yes, another five to four ruling by the stolen court are scrapping a 41-year-old decision that had allowed states to require that public employees pay some fees, known as agency fees, to unions that represent them if the workers choose not to join the unions outright. The decision on Wednesday fulfills a longtime wish of so-called conservatives, who seem to like judicial activism on a whole lot, a whole lot of stuff, despite claiming otherwise. The decision gets rid of the so-called fair share fees that non-members pay to unions in roughly two dozen states, where those non-members enjoy, by law, all of the same wage increases and other benefits that dues-paying members enjoy. But now those uh, fair share fees will be replaced uh, by uh, free riders, I guess. The court ruled that the laws uh, violate the First Amendment by compelling workers to support unions that they may disagree with. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito wrote the 5-4 opinion for the majority, um, who have uh, ruled in case after case this year against voters, against workers, against individuals, in favor of businesses and the wealthy elite. In dissent, Justice Elena Kagan, one of the, uh, wrote of the uh, huge impact that this decision will have. She said there is no sugarcoating today's opinion. She read this from the bench today. The majority overthrows a decision entrenched in this nation's law and its economic life for over 40 years. As a result, it prevents the American people acting through their state and local officials from making important choices about workplace governance. It does so by weaponizing the First Amendment, she said, in a way that unleashes judges now and in the future to intervene in economic and regulatory policy. She continued that almost all economic and regulatory policy affects or touches speech. So the majority's road runs long and at the and at every stop are black robed rulers overriding citizens choices. The First Amendment was meant for better things, said Justice Kagan. There was some uh, slightly better news once again uh, from the lower federal courts, which have not yet entirely been corrupted. Uh, Late on Tuesday night, a judge in California ordered U.S. border authorities to reunite separated families within 30 days, setting a hard deadline in a process that has so far yielded uncertainty, to say the least, about when children, thousands of them, might again see their parents. If children are younger than five, they must be reunified within 14 days of the order issued on Tuesday by U.S. District Judge Dana Sebra in San Diego. Sebra is an appointee of President George W. Bush, by the way. He also issued a nationwide injunction on future family separations unless the parent is deemed unfit or doesn't want to be with the child. It also requires the government to provide phone contact between parents and their children. Within 10 days. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar uh, told Congress on Tuesday that his department still has custody of some 2047 immigrant children who were separated from their parents at the border. That number, according to AP, is just six fewer children than the uh, number in HHS custody as of last Wednesday, one week ago. Just six have been reunited, apparently, with their parents. Uh, Apparently, uh, parents are now getting uh, busy signals or no answers at all from an 800 number that was provided by federal authorities to get information about their children. Attorneys have spoken to about 200 parents, uh, I'm sorry, 200 immigrants at the Port Isabel detention facility near uh, Los Fresnos, Texas, since last week, and only a few knew even where their children were being held. Since calling for an end to the uh, these separations, administration officials haven't uh, succeeded in bringing the parents back with their children, but they have succeeded in drawing up plans to hold as many as 20,000 immigrants at U.S. military bases. They have plans to uh, time to draw up those plans, just not time to reunite babies, apparently, with parents. In election news, the only real way that we can wind back this ongoing national emergency, at least a little bit, maybe, on Tuesday, voters went to the polls uh, for 2018 midterm primary elections in New York, Maryland, Utah, Colorado, and Oklahoma, and primary runoffs as well in Mississippi and South Carolina. Thanks to today's breaking news, not as much time to describe some of the problems that voters face, particularly in Maryland on Tuesday. But uh, we'll try to get to that at another uh, time. But as to the results in Maryland and elsewhere, there was some very good news for progressives for a happy change. So let's start with the biggest news out of Texas. I'm sorry, out of uh, Tuesday's elections. Uh, This one in New York, Donald Trump's old hometown of Queens, in what pundits are describing as a political earthquake on Tuesday. That, at least until today's other political earthquakes, 28-year-old Latina Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated 20-year incumbent Democratic Congressman Joe Crowley of Queens in a huge upset victory for progressives of the fourth most powerful Democrat in the U.S. House. Thought to be a likely candidate to become the next Democratic Speaker of the House, Crowley was. That will not happen now. Ocasio-Cortez trounced Crowley by some 15 points. Crowley hasn't faced a primary in 14 years, and Ocasio-Cortez is now almost certain to become the next Congress member from New York's 14th Congressional District. Crowley, the party boss in Queens and a big corporate Wall Street Democrat, hugely outspent her. Outspent Ocasio Cortez, the white Irish American congressman, uh, outspent the challenger, whose mother is Puerto Rican and father is from the Bronx, $3.4 million to her $200,000. Political observers have likened the upset to that of then-Republican House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, a Republican from Virginia, his unexpected primary loss back in 2014 to now-Congressman Dave Bratt. According to a recent profile at The Intercept, Ocasio-Cortez, who is a Bernie Sanders disciple and a Democratic socialist, she calls for the abolition of U.S. immigration and customs enforcement. That would be ICE she calls for medicare for all tuition-free public college federal a uh, federal jobs guarantee and criminal justice reform now arguing in her campaign uh, video that went viral that uh, quote it doesn't take 100 years to do this it takes political courage that courage paid off on tuesday night in what turned out to be some long overdue good news for progressives of uh, of late and in a bit more good news uh, for progressives in Maryland, Ben Jealous, a former NAACP president who was embraced by Senator Bernie Sanders, decisively defeated his Democratic opponents uh, to win the Democratic gubernatorial nomination on Tuesday in a major victory for the party's progressive wing. In his victory speech, uh, Jealous lashed out at Republican Governor Larry Hogan, said he will triumph in the general election in the fall because he, quote, knows how to build a true people-powered grassroots campaign. Jealous received strong backing and outside money from uh, liberals, unions, progressive groups. He offered uh, bold proposals, including state-based universal health care, debt-free college, And he says he believes that voters will be energized to defeat Hogan, who has record high approval ratings in the state. This will be a tough climb for Jealous, with uh, uh, Hogan, a Republican, still wildly popular in the otherwise uh, very blue state. Republicans, meanwhile, meanwhile, wasted no time seeking to paint Jealous as too far to the left. Republican Governors Association said the Democrats, quote, radical views make him unfit to serve as governor. The statement said Jealous wanted to raise taxes to never before seen levels in, in order to fund his radical pie in the sky spending plan. Jealous, however, uh, scoffed at all of that, Uh, said he uh, would uh, wants to pay for health care, tuition and other programs by raising taxes on cigarettes and on the wealthiest one percent of Marylanders. Close corporate loopholes, free resources by shrinking prisons, legalizing and taxing marijuana. Jealous and his supporters say only an uncompromising message will draw sufficient numbers of Democrats to the polls. We will see if he's right. There was more, but we have uh, to move to some of it, uh, move some of it to another day, I guess, uh, since I want to allow an extra segment here for our friend John Nichols, who is standing by today to discuss all of that and today's anti-union ruling from the Supreme Court, as well, of course, As the political nuclear bomb that was set off just within the past hour or so with the announcement of the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. All of that and more is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Boy, we're dealing with a whole bunch of earthquakes today, uh, including the news just before airtime that Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy is announcing his retirement from the stolen Supreme Court. We will speak to uh, my guest coming up about that momentarily and much more because... As John Nichols writes at The Nation Today, the headlines are right. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a 28-year-old grassroots activist, pulled off a huge Democratic primary upset victory on Tuesday over Congressman Joe Crowley, a veteran party operative and 10-term incumbent who is the fourth-ranking Democrat in the U.S. House. The defeat of Crowley, says Nichols, uh, who was widely, widely seen as a potential successor to House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, was described by a stunned New York Times as, quote, the most significant loss for a Democratic incumbent in years and one that will reverberate across the party and the country. Ocasio-Cortez reportedly uh, won by uh, nearly 15 points over Crowley, despite the fact that Crowley overwhelmingly outspent her by millions of dollars and enjoyed support from the same top-ranking Democrats in New York State and and at the federal level who are lining up to back Democratic New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in his September state primary contest with Progressive activist and actor Synthony Nixon. Nixon had backed Ocasio-Cortez and hailed Tuesday's win as, quote, What happens when you give people a choice, they show up and they reject the status quo. Matt Blizek, the elections mobilization director for MoveOn, extended on the theme, saying, quote, These results are also a shot across the bow Of Democratic establishment in Washington, a young, diverse and boldly progressive resistance movement isn't waiting to be anointed by the powers that be. Americans from all walks of life who demand change are taking reins of power and showing the Democratic Party what its future looks like. The stunning victory in New York's overwhelmingly Democratic 14th congressional district all but assures that Ocasio-Cortez will secure the House seat this November. Joining us now to discuss uh, that particular earthquake that some are describing as a 9.0 earthquake out of Queens on Tuesday. And yes, the uh, several other earthquakes today, including the uh, retirement of the announced retirement of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, is our old friend and journalist John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, and in these times, associate, and, uh, associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. He's also the author of "Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. Oh, John, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend.
0: What a day, brother.
1: Ain't it, though? I uh, I had wanted <laughs> to get to the sunnier news from Tuesday's uh, elections in uh, New York and in Maryland and elsewhere. Uh, but obviously, uh, we need uh, to talk the Supreme Court again today after grim news from the court yesterday, perhaps even grimmer news today with both uh, a ruling on unions and, of course, this news about Anthony Kennedy. We will still talk about all of those elections. But uh, first, let's do the court. Uh, Kennedy, a conservative, but considered the swing vote on the uh, divided court, the divided stolen court. Now retiring, I'm inclined to say John Nichols. What happens now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, here, let's put
1: on our uh, yeah. Good our, luck with that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, let's put on the, our little wizard hats. Yeah. What we come up with? Um, look, actually, there is a good argument that if Democrats and progressives ever needed a wake-up call, and of course they've had plenty, so I'm not suggesting they haven't occurred, but if they ever needed a wake-up call, the Janus decision, the decision in the Janus case on on labor rights, should have been everything they needed. It was a 5-4 decision that showed that the majority on this court is operating as a cabal of uh, you know political strategies this is, this decision wasn't about labor and you know union rights per se it was about much broader political strategies i.e how do you weaken public sector unions mm-hmm. in states across country and they did that there's no question but then when you couple it with the kennedy exit mm-hmm. uh and kennedy of course was a deep conservative a member of the majority in the Janus case, so hardly a hero, right? Right, But he did have, as many judges do after many, many years on the court, they sort of evolved, they get better on some issues. And he, he had evolved on abortion rights, on affirmative action, a handful of other issues, mm-hmm. to a place where he could sort of be counted on to temper the most extreme social conservatism. So now we have this combination. We had a court that was already horrible Mm -hmm. on a host of economic issues, as Janice illustrates. We're potentially, well, we are losing a a minimally moderating influence on some social issues. And when I say minimally, I mean uh, he didn't always Turn the court in
1: the right direction. No, minimally, uh, you know, we need to note that on uh, Tuesday the uh, court came out with a ruling, uh, you know, knocking down California's restrictions on anti-abortion hoaxers and scam artists out here in California. So he was certain he was the swing vote, but anything but a reliable swing vote uh, on many many issues. He was certainly a uh, right in there with the right wingers on many of these uh, rulings we've seen.
0: There we have it all put together. And what this tells us is two things. Number one, the fight against Kennedy, or fight against Kennedy's replacement, whoever Mm -hmm. Trump puts forward, has to be a much more serious battle than the fight on the Gorsuch uh, nomination was. The fight on the Gorsuch nomination, I I thought, was disappointing at a number number of levels. Um, I thought Gorsuch was allowed, when he went before the Judiciary Committee, to essentially lie. I mean, I know we use mm-hmm. politer words like prebarricade, but, you know, what he did was he suggested that he was, you know, really not political, not, ideo- not ideological. He, he sent a lot of, you know, relatively, you know, folksy signals, and, and he wasn't really called out on it effectively, certainly not at a level and in a way that might potentially have broken some Republicans, like Susan Collins, perhaps Murkowski, and others, away. That can't happen. Uh, whoever's put, Whoever Trump puts up, uh, it's got to be a much more coordinated, much more focused fight. And here's the interesting thing. McConnell has signaled already that he wants the Senate to remain in session for a lot of the summer and fall. Right. The reason he's doing that is because there's so many Democrats up for re-election, he wanted to pull them out of their mm-hmm. states. Now, though, this becomes an interesting thing. The fight over a Trump pick to replace Kennedy, which will come, you know, Kennedy leaves mm-hmm. July 31st, um, that's going to be an incredibly high-profile battle that will play out parallel to the Senate election campaign.
1: Let me let me actually, John. Uh, let me even be less polite here. I, it seems to me, and I know that this is all just you know breaking as we go to air here. Uh, so there's a lot of thinking through of strategy and so forth that, that needs to be done. But uh, you know now that the Senate Republicans they've done away with the filibuster over Supreme Court justices, as they did when they stole the seat uh, for uh, Neil Gorsuch that should have gone to Obama's nominee Merrick Garland. I think d- Democrats need to start talking about stealing it back. And when I say that, I'd love your opinion on this. Uh, you know, right now the Senate is 51 49 in favor of Republicans. It could very well uh, flip to Democrats this November. John McCain may not be well enough to even get back to Washington, D.C. at this point to, uh, you know, to, to vote at all. So now you're talking about a 50 49 Senate. If one. Senator Flips, whether it's Jeff Flake, Bob Cork, or somebody like that, Democrats can block this, and alternately, this is something you have experience with in Wisconsin, should the Democrats just walk out? I don't know if there is a, a quorum rule in the U.S. Senate, but if they can't uh, you know, get enough votes to block a Trump nominee, isn't this the right time to walk out, stop all Senate business whatsoever? And uh, keep them from even voting at all until the new uh, Senate can take uh, can uh, take session next year.
0: It's harder to do than it was in the Wisconsin Legislature. Uh, just to let you know, the, mm-hmm. the walkout strategy. Right. But What you're getting at here is the heart and soul of what I'm talking about as well. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, yeah, it's time to call you know out the parliamentarians, call out the experts on the rules, mm-hmm. uh, look for every opportunity. To slow down or stop this initiative, sure, right? Yeah, and, and there's a, two reasons to do that. Uh, number one, you're, you're talking about stealing it back, and that's a you know that's a I understand the phrase, but there's also turning their own strategies, their oh. own uh, language on them, and that is that in 2016, our Republican friends. Suggested that uh, they couldn't advance mm-hmm. uh, the Merrick Garland nomination because it was an election year, right? Right, and yep. there was you know so much up for grabs. We weren't really sure you know who would be president or who would be in charge of things. So why not just wait till the end of it, right? Well, if that's their principle, right? Yep. In a year when you've got an almost evenly divided Senate that that you know could go either way. Why not wait till after? Why not wait till you know next January?
1: Right. Maybe. No, I
0: mean I, it's I I didn't like it when they did that, but the fact is that is what they did to steal a seat. Yeah, on court. <laughs> exactly. And, and so I I do think that this becomes a very critical moment. It's one of the real problems with Supreme Court nominations in general, as we you know one of the challenges that we should understand about this. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always run against politics. Right. It's it's very rare that you have that perfectly scheduled. Oh, we got nothing else to do. Let's fill a seat on the Supreme Court.
1: Right. I mean, there's
0: elections and things going on. But we're in this supercharged moment, this this hyper politicized moment. And the Republicans, from a strategic standpoint, clearly played it for everything it was worth in 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, now the question is, will Democrats play as hard in 2018? Look,
1: John, bullies don't back down. Bullies don't back not. down unless they are pushed back. And, you know, at this point, they obviously have a bully in the White House, but they stole this seat. And it seems like Democrats now need to uh, step up. Again, I know it's early. I know. Uh, As somebody I talked to today said, they are just picking themselves up off the floor after this announcement from Kennedy. But it seems to me I've been thinking about this for a while that it seems to me they need to push back with the same hardball tactics in some fashion, whether it's making your point, John, that, hey, you guys said the voters, uh, you know, need to have a voice in this. After all, the primaries have started. There could be a different Senate after November. Uh, I was going to ask you even before the Kennedy news about uh, David Ferris. Do you know, uh, uh, David Ferris. Uh, he's got a he's a political scientist out of Chicago. He's got a new book called "Time for Democrats to Fight Dirty." He regards the new the uh, current Supreme Court as illegitimate, as I do, and he argues that if Democrats ever regain power in both the Congress and the White House, they should pack the federal courts the way the GOP has over the past year. And more to the point actually add enough seats to the U.S. Supreme Court until they restore a majority, a Democratic majority that was rightly theirs, though stolen by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. I was going to ask you about that tactic before the news about Kennedy, but isn't that the type of hardball that needs to be played here, or Democrats are going to be continue to be bullied by this far-right-wing extremist, authoritarian, fascist uh, d- d- Republican Party that we now have.
0: Well, what do you really think? Well,
1: you know, <laughs> you I'm just—I know—it's uh, hey, kind of where uh, we are, John.
0: But let me let me only counter on a little bit of language there.
1: Okay. You
0: know, it's you're suggesting that this is adopting the same tactics, right? Doing the same thing. What I would suggest is, actually, you know, this goes back to something that uh, you know Judge Reinhardt, who used to serve uh, served for a long time on the Ninth Circuit, used to talk about, and and he said, when Republicans are in charge, at least in this contemporary era, they're going to put very conserv- conservative people on the courts, mm-hmm. federal appeals and Supreme Court, and and. Democrats have for a long time, going back to the Clinton years, made a terrible mistake in that the people that they've placed on the courts have tended to be quite moderate. And so what you end up with is an imbalance even when the Democrats are in charge, right? Right. Uh, You know, the court keeps, things keep moving more and more to the right. Yep. Now, that's not always on some of the social issues. That tends to particularly be the case on economic and corporate issues. And so... There's a need for Democrats, progressives, for everybody, people of goodwill, to take the courts seriously. And that isn't just playing a game, right? You know, not pushing back on a bully. That is actually understanding how to establish a proper balance on the courts in a system like we have. Right. And the way to do that is to make sure that you can fill all the openings that are there, fight hard to do so, Know, kind of don't accept the bullying from the Republicans. You don't necessarily have to be as bad a player as they are. You have to make good arguments for what you do if you're going to expand the size of the courts, because there need to be, you need more people on the federal bench. Uh, it's a legit argument made, you know, not just by you and me in this mm-hmm. conversation, but by federal judges. You know, make the case to the American people. Be the honorable party, if you will. But fight for what is honorable, what is right in what? this thing. And I think this is where the Democrats, uh, on the Gorsuch nomination, I, I found it sort of shocking at times how you know, respectful they were of the process mm-hmm. after they, everything that happened. And I noted that during the process, I wrote about this in the book, uh, Horseman. I wrote about Gorsuch and the nomination. It was very interesting that a former member of the Senate, Russ Feingold, uh, mm-hmm. Who had been the chair of the Constitution Subcommittee on the Judiciary Committee? If he had been mm-hmm. re-elected to the Senate, he would have been there challenging Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. He put out a, a very important memo as the Gorsuch nomination was coming to a head, and said, "You know, look, guys, you need to make a much bigger deal of the structural reality of how this happened, and you need to, you know, you need to tell the American people." You are blocking things. You are, you know, standing in the way of this for a reason, and that is because this seat should be Merrick Garland's. Yep. And and so I thought that go back if you go back and dust off Feingold's memo, I think it frames out a very very good approach. Uh, At least
1: starting this fight, I will. I will try to go back and look at that memo because it it was, uh, of course, now uh, some years ago, and I wonder if it uh, rises to the moment that we are now in, after a year or so with a uh, stolen Supreme Court and looking to uh, uh, a right wing major, a stolen right wing majority now for. The next generation or two with a second appointment by President Donald Trump. John Nichols, let me take a quick break here and uh, come back to talk about some sunnier news, I hope, uh, regarding Tuesday's elections in seven states uh, and the earthquake happening inside the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party itself. John Nichols sticks with us to cover all of that. John Nichols, J- and, and you can follow him on the Twitters. By the way, John, uh, follow him on the Twitters. His handle is Nichols Uprising. I'm just saying, John, Uprising. Quick break, and we are back with <laughs> Nichols Uprising right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Democrats ought to be taking it to the streets. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com on a uh, extraordinarily busy and uh, troubling day and uh, a day of good news, frankly, following elections on Tuesday in uh, seven states. I'm speaking with uh, my friend John Nichols of the uh, Washington correspondent for The Nation. Uh, longtime uh, Wisconsin favorite son and author of *Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. All right, we've talked about the uh, terrible news from the U.S. Supreme Court today a little bit. John, uh, let's talk about the better news in these elections. Uh, there were several big and important wins for progressives on Tuesday. As seven states held primaries for the crucial for the crucial 2018 midterms. But the biggest news by far seems to be the defeat of longtime Wall Street funded establishment Democratic Congressman Joe Crowley by upstart first timer Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a progressive 28 year old. Democratic socialist and Bernie Sanders acolyte, which the media and political world uh, seem to be characterizing uh, today, as you pointed out, at The Nation as a political earthquake. Why is this such shattering news, John Nichols? It's it's just one race in liberal New York City, after all, uh, and one in which just, uh, oh, I don't know, 25,000 or so Democratic uh, voters turned out on Tuesday.
0: Well, it goes to the conversation we were just having. Right, because there has been a sense that Democrats, even reasonably liberal Democrats, and it's important to understand that, that Crowley was a reasonably liberal Democrat, um, don't seem to be sufficient to the moment. Mm-hmm. Right, there's an awful lot of grassroots Democrats who are deeply concerned about whether their party is ready to do two things. Number one, fight in the moment we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the struggles that need to be done. And, and notably, um, the challenger in this race, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, went down to the Texas border as part of her campaign uh, to highlight the immigrant rights issues that were in play in recent weeks. Um, you know, she really understood the, the significance of wrapping in all the battles of the moment, right, and, and being on top of them, ahead of them, aggressive. So that's number one, right? Fight the battles of the moment with a with an energy and a focus that, again, a lot of Democrats seem to lack. But secondly, fight the battles of the future. Get ready for where the party has to go. And it's it's very notable. This is, I think, relatively well covered, but, but I would still argue not sufficiently. This challenge was mounted by a member of Democratic Socialists of America who identified as a Democratic Socialist Mm -hmm. who in interviews talked about, you know, why she was uh, a democratic socialist and also a a very, you know, kind of boldly progressive individual whose campaign in many ways extended from not just the Bernie Sanders campaign for which she had been an organizer, Mm -hmm. but from the many movements that are in play now on Economic and social and racial justice and criminal justice reform issues, just a host of, of uh, consequential, consequential uh, movement struggles. And why I say that's the politics of the future, you know, we've talked about this before, Brad. We are in the midst of radical changes that have nothing to do or very little to do with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're in the midst of a globalization revolution, a digital revolution, an automation revolution. Our society is changing in fundamental ways, and we need a lot more ideas. And we need bolder ideas to be able to handle these changes. And I think that a a chunk of young voters, especially in that Bronx and Queens district, Mm -hmm. recognize that need.
1: You argue at The uh, Nation today that most Democratic leaders have been very slow to recognize the intense yearning for economic and social change amongst their uh, amongst their own base, and among yeah. the million of vote, millions of voters who could be rallied to the party line if it offered a dramatically bolder vision. And I agree with you, but that was also the argument that Bernie Sanders made before not being able to rally enough voters to his bolder vision to win the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016. And a number of his endorsed candidates have uh, failed to win nominations uh, elsewhere in the country so far this cycle. So... What makes you so sure, John Nichols, that there are those millions of voters out there who, uh, you know, enough to actually flip red seats to blue this November and uh, a red White House to a blue White House uh, in 2020?
0: Well, let's uh, note that, that when we were talking about this just a moment ago, I suggested there were two factors, right? Mm-hmm. One was, you know, that energy from the Sanders campaign and and. You know all of all of the kind of Sanders-focused analysis, which you hear a lot of. But secondly, is also that involvement with movements. You know that that you know reaching beyond even where Sanders went uh, into immigrant rights, racial justice, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, full on for single payer, full on for um, as you know in this case. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez talking about uh, housing as a right, Uh um, a whole host of fundamental economic and social issues. I, I think there's a space there, but you can't go cautious on it. And it's not to say that some of the candidates who were defeated were cautious. Not necessarily the case, but there are ways to hit your mark. And what was interesting yesterday is that you saw a number of instances where candidates hit the mark. Uh, It isn't just this race in New York City. You also had in Maryland Mm -hmm. Ben Jealous, who was a key Sanders backer from 2016, former head of the NAACP, a remarkable individual in his own right on a host of issues and great resume, great history, running for governor uh, in a crowded primary. Pretty much the whole of the Maryland establishment was lined up against him. But he put together a coalition of unions Activists, young people, uh, people of color in uh, especially the Baltimore area, and he prevailed. He didn't just win by a little. He got forty percent in a nine-way primary. Right. eleven points ahead of his next closest competitor. That's a big win, and and I cannot begin to emphasize. I followed this race closely. What Jealous did was not merely say, you know, yeah, I want to shake things up, or I want to be a progressive, or blah blah blah. Much like uh, Ocasio Cortez. He um, had an incredibly detailed agenda. I mean, this is a, a visionary campaign that talked about the future in all sorts of ways. And if I give you one other example, out in Colorado, Emily Sirota won a state legislative fight. Mm-hmm. And it was a fight between what a lot of our media might identify as two liberals. Her opponent was a relatively uh, progressive woman as well. And yet there, were, there was a real divide there as regards intensity and passion and Emily Sirota took very, very bold stands as regards labor rights. She was even attacked, uh, in in some instances, for being so bold in having done so. But she won that primary, and she will, she'll end up in the legislature. Um, And uh, Ocasio-Cortez in New York will end up in Congress, because these are, you know, pretty Democratic districts. Yeah. Jealous has a tougher fight, yep. but boy, if you watched him last night as he declared victory, he was going right to the heart of the matter of you know an expansive turnout-building, generationally focused campaign.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, I think there's stuff happening there. I there is, hot, hot yeah. Hot. He he will have a tough fight against a very popular Republican yep. governor, Larry Hogan, in uh, in Maryland but it it's great to see people standing up and fighting and also it moves i hope it serves to move the rest of the party as well our friend and and uh, your colleague at the nation david dayan talking about the uh, ocasio cortez uh, uh, victory in new york said people will say quote that that's only one and he adds well it only takes one now every corporate democrat representing a solid blue seat We'll have to wonder if they're next. He says it changes everything. I think it may be right. Does it change, uh, does it translate into good news? Uh, We've got just a minute or two left here. Uh, does it translate into good news for Cynthia Nixon in her insurgent and uh, supposedly long-shot challenge against Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo in the uh, September uh, the state primaries in New York?
0: Well, Cynthia Nixon endorsed this challenge. Right mm-hmm. And the two candidates you know, appeared next to each other. Uh, I think there's, yeah, I think it has has consequence because you know, in politics, as you know, Brett, one of the most important things is simply suggesting to people what is possible. Once they see you know something as realistic as within the realm of possibility, then a great deal of energy flows to it. And uh, I, I just think that Cynthia Nixon, Uh, Certainly, she has an incredibly uphill race against Andrew Cuomo, and Andrew Cuomo is perhaps much more conscious than Joe Crowley of the threat. But uh, there's no question that that there is an overlap there. Nixon was talking about it today. And there's also no question that even Democrats who who don't necessarily face a challenge, you know, that incumbents who are probably going to, you know, maybe they don't have a primary or they're Mm -hmm. in a relatively good space, They still have to get this signal. Democrats in Congress. Look, Joe Crowley was the guy many had tapped, or many had at least pointed to, as the potential next leader of the Democratic caucus, potential next Speaker of the House. Yeah. He got beat. Yes. People note, I tell you, members of the Democratic caucus, no matter where they're at politically, They notice things like that. (laughs) They
1: notice this one. Uh, John Nichols, uh, let's see if I can fit in two more quick questions. will uh, establish... I have been uh, kind of brutal over the last several weeks uh, against those progressives, not all progressives, but those progressives who, uh, you know, continue to say, oh, there's no difference in the party, why bother in the two parties, why bother voting? Uh, If they can't tell that, yes, there is a difference and that even a terrible Democrat... At, you know, in the middle of this national emergency, even a terrible Democrat turns out to be better than a Republican. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've been uh, telling those progressives, we're in a national emergency. You need to vote for the guy or the girl with D by their name, period, this November until we get out of this mess, even if you don't like that candidate. But uh, the same thing is true for the uh, the establishment, the the leadership. Will the establishment Democrats join in and really get behind these progressive candidates like Ben Jealous in Maryland and uh, Ocasio-Cortez in New York and elsewhere across the country when they win their uh, their primaries? They better.
0: If they don't, they will they will literally wreck the party. Right? You can't yeah. play those games anymore. People are very, you know, again, this is a media shift as much as a political shift. People, we've democratized information about how parties operate, and people at the grassroots find out whether the party is, you know, withdrawing support or limiting support or not doing enough. Mm-hmm. So you can't play the old games anymore. That's that's the number one lesson. Uh, the number two lesson is that you've got a, you know, there's a push and pull here, right? Uh, many Democratic leaders uh, are actually quite progressive folks, but they've been cautious because they think they have to be cautious, right? They they imagined a certain kind of politics, they got into a habit of compromise. Wins like this, you know, advancements like what we saw yesterday in a number of races, suggest that there's another way. And it's very important that that suggestion, you know, come through, that it be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to think you are correct in, you know, yeah, you, look, this is, this, this, you really want to see a shift in Congress because you want to have a checking and a balancing of Donald Trump. That the Republicans simply won't do. And one of the ways to think about this thing is take a look at the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a caucus that generally has members who are very progressive on a host of economic, social, foreign policy issues. Uh, not all of them the same, but many of them mm-hmm. really in a in a good place. I've just been running analysis recently on a number of Congressional Progressive Caucus members who would be committee chairs. Or key subcommittee chairs, if Democrats were to take the House, and that's a way to think about it. Even yep. if you're a local Democrat, may not be the greatest thing in the world that you are empowering some very progressive people to run committees and to actually decide on how legislation advances, Mm -hmm. how issues are dealt with.
1: Yeah, and how, by the way, uh, you know, how Supreme Court justices are replaced when it comes to the U.S. Senate. Uh, And so that's why, you know, even if you have to hold your nose and vote for Joe Manchin in West Virginia for Senate, if that means that the Democrats uh, take back the majority and can block some of this ongoing nightmare, I would argue that's a, a, a good thing you <sighs> John, in thirty seconds, I got uh, real Donald Trump today saying on Twitter, "The Democrats are in turmoil," and of course, the right is pointing to these uh, progressive victories on Tuesday as signs that the party is. Uh, uh, you know, they they take the word socialist and turn that into Marxist. Uh, how do you narr? How do you uh, 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 respond to that narrative coming from the right? How do you counter this, you know, this corporate media narrative that we're going to hear about the Democratic Party? moving far, far to the left, as Republicans have been pretending for so many years.
0: You know, they only scream about it when they're scared. Yep. These people, look, our Republican friends are not all insincere, but an awful lot of them are. And the fact of the matter is, they know as well as you and anybody else, does that when Bernie Sanders ran in 2016, a big part of what got people excited about him wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily that they were all socialists, or democratic socialists. That's not the point. But the fact that he was willing to identify uh, in a way that was different, mm-hmm. that was bold, that was potentially, even some people saw as a little threatening, that was what people thought. That's what people wanted. They want something more. And again, this isn't just a simplistic thing of saying, yeah, everybody wants socialism. That's not the point, or everybody wants you know, some sort of, you know, incredibly bold progressivism. But what is clear is voters are sick and tired of status quo politicians who won't take a stand and won't be bold on anything. And Republicans would like Democrats to stay that way. And so with all due respect, if our Republican friends tell you, oh, the Democratic Party's moving too far to the left, it's probably a good signal that the Democratic Party's doing the right thing.
1: Keep moving. John Nichols of The Nation. Find his work, of course, at thenation.com and many other places. Follow him on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising and buy his book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. John quite a day. Uh, thanks for uh, sticking with us for a second segment that we didn't plan to do with you today, but I'm really happy you were able to, to join us for it, uh, John, and I look forward to talking to you in the near future. The fight goes on. Indeed it does. we got to get out. I'm running late. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Uh, of course, to John Nichols and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And as ever, my thanks to those of you, we need you now more than ever, who stop by bradblog.com slash donate so we can continue to fight this good fight as long as we possibly can. We rely on you, bradblog.com Slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog. And I think that's it. Hey, Democrats, shut it down. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.